This is Ken Forster, Executive Director of Momentum. Welcome to our Digital Industry Leadership Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momentum, they are deep industry practitioners. We hope you find these podcasts informative as always. We welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day and welcome to a special edition of our Digital Industry Leadership Series. Today, I'm pleased to welcome back Guido Jure, the recent Chief Digital Officer at ABB. Guido has over 25 years of digital industry leadership experience, including serving as Chief Technology Officer at Nokia and President of Digital Platforms for Envision Energy, a wind turbine manufacturer. He had a start at Cisco Systems for over a decade, serving as general manager of their emerging technologies group and later general manager for their Internet of Things business unit. Guido holds a Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering from Worcester Polytech Institute and a PhD in Computing from Imperial College. We're going to discuss his insights and experiences at the forefront of digital industry transformation, looking at best practices and opportunities. Guido, welcome back to our Digital Industry Leadership Podcast for a record third time after our podcast number 23 in 2018 and number 43 in 2019. Well, thank you very much, Ken. Glad to be back. And it's it's great to have you back. Uh, So I'd like to start with a Broad question, um, which uh, I remember Ed uh, asked uh, in one of the earlier podcasts. So this will uh, compare and contrast in some mm-hmm. sense. But what does digital transformation mean to you? I think it really starts, Ken, with sort of the interactions with customers. How do we digitize that? So that's essentially e-commerce, digital marketing, transitioning towards the digitization of the products and services. And that's not necessarily the same as dematerialization. So we're not necessarily saying hardware bad, software good. In fact, I would argue, and we can get into this perhaps a bit later, that at least in some markets, it's the combination of hardware and connected sort of services that is actually very compelling. So, but the products and services become digitally changed as well. And then uh, the, the transformation of business models And then some areas that you might not expect, but I think these are really important in my experience at ABB has only just confirmed this, uh, culture, clock speed, skill sets. So there's a whole element of this that is about changing the the way a company works and thinks about opportunities and markets and customers, which is sort of thrown under the guise of digital transformation, but it's actually just the business transformation or the adaptation of a modern enterprise take into account the impact of rapid change driven by technology, of course. Yeah, we always like to say it's it's uh, change management catalyzed by technology or digital technology in this case. And it's interesting the way that you've you've uh, categorized that. The When we think of the chief digital officer many times, uh, even though they have the word digital in it, it's much more about that type of, you know, as you say, rapid change management uh, in that regard. So. Especially coming out of your most recent experience, what do you see as the key role of chief digital officer, and especially in a in a traditional uh, industrial technology company? Yeah, so I think one of the things that it's interesting to compare notes, Ken, with other chief digital officers, and I've done that over the years, and it's always fun to sort of, especially as they're just appointed in their role, um, and I had an opportunity to do that several times uh, over the last couple of years. 
the thing that we all had in common, I think, is there was, an, there was a phrase that came up time and time again, which is change agent. In some ways, if your business doesn't need to change, then I don't think you necessarily want to be hiring a chief digital officer either. But the chief digital officer role is in some sense the manifestation or the point of focus where a lot of aspirations and frustrations are channeled. <laughs> and typically, and uh, we might get into this a little bit later, I think one of the key catalyzing moments as to why a chief digital officer is appointed is that the status quo is no longer sufficient. Either the company sees a great opportunity or it's falling behind or something, but there is a change required. And so this, this incarnation of that change is this chief digital officer. And they have different degrees of responsibility. Some chief digital officers have no team. Some chief digital officers have everything I described just earlier, which is they, they have IT, they've got e-commerce, and they've got sort of the common technology platform that these connected products would be built on. And, and it varies. Uh, in my role at ABB, I didn't have IT and I was not uh, in charge of e-commerce. On the other hand, the building and the providing of a common platform for the 22 business units inside of the company was the main part of my focus. And it was interesting to to try and then, of course, explain to people what was the need of such a team and such a role, where does the responsibility of the business unit be, uh, stop, where does that central team's responsibility then take over, and how does that become an effective partnership so you're not competing, but you're definitely able to accelerate what the company can do and would be able to do without having a chief digital officer. So that's sort of the, I know sort of defining it in a fairly fuzzy way, but I think Ultimately, the, the chief digital officer role is the manifestation of a business transformation, a strategy transformation that the company has thought about for a while. Mm. When uh, when I think about um, in traditional industrials, and I guess ABB could be comparable against GE mm -hmm. and GE Digital in in that time. You know, one of the 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 common, if you will, strategies is, as you said, to have a strategy in place and or build a burning platform in some sense, right? Whether it's based on a platform, i.e., you know, Bill Rue and Predix, or whether it's based on the need to move, as you say, to you know, product as a service or service as a product, right? The the, the change in in your place in the in the value chain. When you think about industrials, particularly, what you mentioned that you see uh, that you get inspiration from talking with other chief digital officers. To what sectors should an industrial themselves look for best practices or inspiration? And to what degree should they benchmark themselves? So I think for myself, Ken, what I've always been intrigued by is usually if you benchmark against the same traditional competitors you've had forever, the history of disruption shows most of the time that the disruption doesn't come from companies that look exactly like you. And the reason for that is, of course, companies tend to hire from and have people go to com competitors that are sort of in the same line of business. So over time, there's sort of a cross-pollination. So ABB recruits from Siemens and Siemens recruits from GE and GE recruits from... So it, it's essentially you're tapping into the same gene pool. If you want to see something different and if you want to see where potential disruptions would come from, one example or one thing that I think is always very fruitful is to look at the boundary of consumer and prosumer. And that's especially because the industrials tend to be, for the most part, I mean, I know I'm generalizing here, but most industrial companies tend to be B2B companies. They're, they're focused on enterprise, large customer bases. They're not directly selling to consumers uh, most of the time. But looking at that interface, and I'll give an example. So if you think about smart buildings, so a number of industrial companies sell 
HVAC, building management systems, these things that are essentially the backbone of a smart building. Do you benchmark yourself against other HVAC BMS type companies or do you start looking to see what consumers are starting to do with things like Amazon Alexa and the integration that is possible there with your Echo speaker being a Zigbee hub in your home, able to control a variety of devices with simple rules and triggers? Because the, the reason why I think it's important to, to see that is not so much that Amazon is a threat to the BMS market, but that the expectations of consumers, and let's not forget, employees are all consumers at the heart. We've seen this in IT where, where companies adopt the, the iPad as a user interface. They, they start redesigning the interfaces of their applications to be more consumer-like. So the user experience expectations for apps are firmly set by consumers, whether or not you're building a B2B app or not. So therefore, I think one source of innovation is to look at that interface. What is the prosumer side of your business where you see things that are innovating quickly, where people are tinkering? And I'll, I'll dwell on that second theme for just a moment, if I, if I may. I think one of the best ways to detect early signs of innovation is to look for evidence of tinkering. And that tinkering may happen in your industry, it may happen in your segment, but quite often it's sort of a little bit on the edge, it's on the boundary of your market. And tinkering is an example of where a customer is trying to push a square peg into a round hole. They're using one of your products, they're using one of your technologies, but they're asking questions or trying to make this thing do something that it wasn't designed to do. And I think the reason why that's so rich with insight is that it indicates that there's a real problem or a real opportunity. The customer has looked for a variety of solutions to solve this problem or to address this opportunity. And the fact that they've chosen what is essentially an inferior approach indicates that there is perhaps a market gap, meaning there is nothing in the market that is really addressing that customer's need. Now, if this customer is a one-off and no one else has this need, then that's fruitless. But sometimes what you see is the beginning of a trend. People want to solve a certain problem and these are just the early adopters. And if you can track them and, and get close to them and say, tell me more about why you want to solve this problem and why you think the square peg is a good solution to your round hole or why, why you haven't looked or why you haven't found a round peg for your round hole, uh, that's really rich with insight. But that doesn't often happen in the heart of your industry, in the core of your business. It's usually at the edge. It's uh, brilliant. I. Um... I, I was involved with an ag tech company, one, one of the largest actually, um, several years ago. And uh, you know, the traditional business was, you know, the crops, if you will, right, and 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 crop management tools. And ultimately, they they brought on a a effectively a prosumer and consumer line, very specifically to look at uh, digital innovation, right? The, mm -hmm. the kind of the future of the farm could also be modeled in some sense in the future of food and the future of uh, even plant care, right? Yes. And and the level of insights they got from uh, gardeners versus uh, large farmers who actually, it was a net flow up, if you will, of insights versus the other way around. And so uh, yeah. I think that, um, especially when you talk about um, um, uh, as you say, HVAC, BMS, you know, looking at Nest as an example, right, yes. would probably be more disruptive uh, than than certainly looking at the next generation of variable speed drives, right, for uh, industrial HVAC. Yeah, so, exactly. uh, yeah, I mean, well, you can see, uh, perhaps hotels would say, look, you know, our guests already know how to use a Nest thermostat. Let's put a whole bunch of Nest thermostats into this hotel. And before you know it, you now have a question where it's like, oh, if you're a company like, say, Honeywell or somebody who traditionally sells thermostats, you would say, like, is this a aberration or is this the beginning of a potential trend where 
this boundary of consumer to prosumer is manifesting itself and we have to take our own devices to become more Nest-like in terms of yes. ease of use and simplicity and all the rest, because otherwise we will see this as a potential threat or at least an opportunity for somebody who does address that need and say like, ah, that's what the market is expecting now. Mm. I want to go back to something you said a little bit earlier, talking about um, centralization and and trying to uh, say be best align an organization uh, in terms of where digital fits. Obviously, mm -hmm. uh, GE set in some sense a pattern in the way that they set up digital as a central organization, um, and I think originally you did uh, you started that at ABB as well. Although we've seen some organizations go and fully decentralize that um, and uh, and have the equivalent of uh, BU level uh, chief digital officers all guided by one. Is there an ideal model in your mind since you've, you, you've certainly experienced a, a cross section of these? Well, there's essentially three models you could pursue, right? So you could go for a completely decentralized. Look, you've got a company made up of fairly autonomous business units. You essentially set the broad direction, but you let the business unit solve it however they want. Then you have what I would call a hybrid model where there is a central team and there is a certain amount of responsibility for digitalization also in the BUs. That's essentially the model that ABB had. <clears throat> or you go for a completely centralized model where the businesses keep doing what they traditionally were doing and you're creating sort of a new co in, in a central place where you say, okay, this is the entity that will develop the new products, the new services, the new platform, and all of that will be done in, in a central team. Now, I think of those three models, and they're not static, because I think that you could argue that sometimes you wanna be starting out in a more centralized way with maybe a decentralization at some point. Now, part of this is the perpetual pendulum going back and forth between conglomerates are in favor, out of favor, in favor, out of favor, and in the industrial landscape <laughs> right now, yep. to, be, to, to be completely transparent, the investment climate, the activist investors are encouraging large distributed conglomerates to become more focused. And that's why you see companies like GE, Siemens, ABB selling off what they would consider to be perhaps less core assets, whether it's the healthcare part of GE or aviation part of GE, or it's the uh, the um, utility side of, for example, ABB. Now, so there's always a little bit of this, you know, oscillation of the of the corporate model, centralized, decentralized, centralized, decentralized. That always happens, and it happens over many years. But I think the argument for doing it somewhat centrally initially, I think, is strong, <clears throat> and the reason I believe that is because. If your company, if you feel as the incoming CEO that your company is lagging in terms of the adoption of cloud and AI and big data and all of those technology disruptions, and your organization is currently quite decentralized with a lot of empowerment, the problem you have digital people inside of your business units. But I would contend that if you're not a leader right now, whatever you were doing isn't working for you. So essentially something else is required. And one of the ways to do something else is to run it more centrally, more focused, more visible to the very top and to the board, which gives it a, a specific focus. The other problem you have with a initially decentralized approach is you might end up in an, in an environment where everything is kind of subscale. You've got, you know, you don't have 20 data scientists, you got one. Uh, you don't have 20 cloud experts, you've got one. And at some point, just having a small number of these things isn't enough. It's not linear. It's like, oh, well, you know, with one fifth of the resources, we get one fifth of the result. At some point with one fifth of the resources, you get no result. So 
by pooling those or by putting more of the resources in a central bucket, I do think you get the conditions whereby critical capabilities can start. So in the case of, for example, my own experience at ABB, we started with a centralized model. I created a central team to build a common platform. The reason I call it hybrid is because the business units remained responsible for building what we call the solution. So this would be the applications that use the platform. So it was like an internal software company, if you will, for the rest of ABB. And one key manifestation of what I would call building capability, and I'll just point to this data point, over the four years that I was at ABB, the businesses, the business units, increased their spending on digitalization by 38% per year. So what you saw was once they saw that these capabilities were interesting, valuable, and they could build upon them, the rationale for pushing more investment to increase their own capabilities grew. So they would hire more data scientists, more cloud experts, more developers themselves, diverting some of the R&D away from perhaps the traditional areas towards these new areas, building up more of that capability. So after about four years, if you made the case to say, look, why don't we now push some of the central capabilities back into the business units? I think that case is different than essentially seeing that as, oh, that's just going back to what you had before. No, the difference being that in the meantime, the businesses have built up a lot of additional digital capability in terms of size of team and know-how and attracting the right talent. But I do think that most companies will go for a bit of a hybrid and within that they will oscillate between somewhat more decentralized, somewhat more centralized, somewhat more decentralized. And that oscillation, I think, is to some extent a normal ebb and flow of like, we need these skills, but we need them closer to customer. Or the other tendency, we have a lot of these skills, but they're all spread out in subscale. Let's put them together in a common team and get more bang for our buck. So those two opposing forces, customer intimacy, uh, intimacy versus scale, essentially uh, explain why I think there's this natural oscillation. You mentioned oscillation, but it also sounded like you talked about it being a kind of a life cycle, uh, a life cycle, if you will, spectrum starting off potentially as looking at this thing as a dramatic and change agent driven in terms of NUCO and then you know moving down to be more hybrid uh, and ultimately moving down to the maybe some of the BUs. Does this mean that the chief digital officer as a role is primarily a transitory change agent one or do you see it long term, i.e. jumping from one change cycle to the next? I do think that it's somewhat transient. However, that that period of transience might be quite long. It's it's not months. I think in many cases you could imagine that you hire a chief digital officer, they determine along with the leadership of the company that the initial priority might be to create some common software platform to do big data analytics, blah, blah, blah. Then you discover that you know your customer interactions, e-commerce, the disruptions coming with the e-commerce players like Amazon, Alibaba are significant and the company needs a response to that. So maybe the, show, the focus shifts there. And once you do that, you realize a big dependency on your ERP systems as well as your customer care systems. And therefore you start looking at your IT. So None of this is extremely speedy. All of these things require some time. So you could be looking at a decade or more uh, to just simply starting to affect all of those changes. In fact, I've come to believe, Ken, that any kind of culture change effort between five and seven years, I think, is probably a minimum required to affect durable culture change inside of a company. So all of those things, even if they're transient, they're transient over years or even potentially decades. I do think that a chief digital officer role could be a 
assignment for someone that essentially somebody moves into that role and thereafter becomes a chief operating officer or potentially, and this is one area that I think is really promising, one thing that I think a chief digital officer could also engender inside of a company is the creation of new all digital business units. So let me explain. Most businesses, especially in industrial, sort of come from a physical manifestation of a physical product that uh, then gets some digital capability added to it. In the course of digitalization, you may discover that there are new opportunities, new adjacencies, new markets. And the chief digital officer could be, and I think ideally would be, an early proponent of the company getting into these adjacencies. And then of course, when the leadership of the company looks around and says like, okay, you've convinced us, this sounds really promising, who should we appoint to lead this? I think many eyes in the room will turn to the chief digital officer because having made the case, they will say, well, since you seem to care so much and you seem to be so passionate, maybe you should go and lead this. So then you could imagine if that becomes successful that the CDO becomes the BU manager, managing director, division president, whatever you call them in your company of this new entity and then eventually potentially CEO. It's almost like a, a venture studioing approach in some sense, right? Create new businesses, you know, launch them, run them, you know, get them to some level of maturity and you know, rinse and repeat in some sense. Yeah, it's, and I think uh, in particular, that's a, there's I think new models emerging where I think in the past you would have said, well, you either go and buy a company, so acquisition, mm -hmm. right, or you do a spin out, like you've got a bunch of people, got some good ideas, but we can't nurture them here. Companies have also tried to do sort of internal incubation. That's what I was doing at Cisco for about um, 10 years. But I think there's a new model emerging, which you see with General Motors and Cruise and Alibaba with Ant Financials and uh, Illumina with Grail, where you do a partial spin out. So you, you start this inside, but then you sell off some of the equity to either private equity or VCs with a goal to create a semi sort of permeable barrier between the new co and the rest of the company. So you transfer in some people, you transfer in some know-how, but you also attract some from the outside and you attract some outside in, in investment to give you the runway required for that five to 10 year run to prove that this can now be successful. It's, uh, we, we have uh, seen examples of this model. You've mentioned some good ones in there as well. Um, and it, it sits somewhere between, as you say, PE and traditional VC in this regard. And, and there are a number of companies setting up to really help uh, create these venture and run these venture studios. Uh, we've uh, we actually did the, that work for Cisco a while back, if you remember the uh, chill project that they did, uh, the Hyper Innovation Living Laboratories. Yes. <laughs> and so I, again, I think Cisco in many ways was a very early leader in a lot of these uh, these efforts. So let, let's go back to uh, your, your leadership and when you first came into uh, ABB or other positions you've had in the past. How, how do you assess the team's readiness for digital change and, and how do you build that right leadership and, and, and overall operational team? So I think in general, if you wanna assess the company's appetite for change, I think it's driven by, by two things. It's fear or greed, both work. <laughs> but essentially it's a question of like, is it fear like we're falling behind, um, our traditional competitors are beating, our, beating us and we have new entrants coming in and we need a different strategy, person, team, whatever to, to help us. Or it could be greed, which is probably better expressed as we see opportunity. We think we can grow, we have adjacencies we're not currently addressing. We need someone to come in with some new approaches and new thinking. 
Both are good. I think if you don't see either one, I would question whether there's enough commitment to the role of a chief digital officer. So I think if you have a desire and a hunger for change, that's a good uh, requirement. I think the second, especially for CDOs whose mandate and whose span of control can be somewhat ambiguous and fuzzy, you need a strong sponsor. So whether it's the CEO who brings in the CDO or it's the leadership team in general around the CEO, without a strong buy-in that says, yes, we have hired this individual, this is a this is an important role, we need to give them the, the runway, the mandate to go and effect some change. If you are trying to sell that to the leadership team as you come in, that's a tough slog. So ideally, the CEO would have laid the, the terrain, would have sort of prepared the ground, if you will, to say, look, I'm going to bring on board a CDO and this is why. In the case of ABB, I had very strong support from both the CEO and the board, and that was very helpful as well because the board said, look, digital is one of the top priorities of the company. We want to hear about it on a regular basis. So that helps because you have carrot and stick. I mean, on the one hand, a chief digital officer can offer the carrot of, I've got all these people that understand these new technologies. Would you like some help? But there's also a stick which occasionally is required, which is, hey, listen, uh, I really need you to do something. And even if you're not entirely convinced, I do have this stick and I occasionally would want to use that if that's what it takes. So I think those are the, the imperatives that help in terms of a successful digital transformation. How, um, how did you measure your progress, uh, the setting goals and objectives that were aligned in the organization? Um, and, and especially when you think about trying to avoid getting too far ahead of the organization or uh, in some sense, you're not moving fast enough. Yeah, so that's great. And of course, the ultimate proof in the pudding for any company would be like, we want to see profitable growth. And then you could argue about, okay, how much of that profitable growth is due to the digital contributions and the digital elements, especially if you're not setting up a new code, but it's a more hybrid model where you have digitalization being pursued in existing business units. Trying to, you know, as John F. Kennedy said, you know, success has a thousand parents, but failure is an orphan. So if you are successful, then everyone will claim that they were part of that success. So trying to demonstrate that that's due to the digital contribution can be somewhat challenging. But I think you can have some early indications of success. So for example, we would uh, look at measuring, for example, the availability of our internal digital platform. Now you can make a platform available and if nobody uses it, that it doesn't matter much. So we would say, well, in order to be able to use it, it first has to exist. So let's build that platform. And we chose to build on top of Microsoft Azure. So once we plugged in what we perceived as some holes or some gaps in that uh, platform, that's what we released as the ABB ability platform. The other metric I held out for my team was I want as many of ABB's business units to sign up and use this. In the end, we got all 22 after a while since we sold some of the businesses, 18 business units all went and signed up to use it, which I thought was fantastic. Then the next metric is, okay, how many solutions are they building on top of this platform? Then the next metric is, okay, how are those solutions faring in the marketplace? But you have to have momentum before you can have sort of the final proof in the pudding of profitable growth. And you have to break it down into these intermediate metrics because the problem is this profitable growth could perhaps take five, seven years to materialize in a significant way. Let's go back to something you mentioned earlier. We were talking a little bit about uh, this concept of ventures to doing. Um, how did you leverage the innovation ecosystem, both inside and outside uh, ABB while you were there? Yeah, so one of the things that was, I think, an opportunity 
Although industrial companies tend to buy and sell from each other, it's an industry where no customer is greenfield, everything is brownfield. So it is quite common for your biggest competitors to also be your biggest customers. What was not pervasive was a spirit of partnering. And in particular, one of our earliest decisions was to partner with Microsoft as the foundation of our platform. So already leveraging a lot of those software innovations from Microsoft, and after a while, we added many other partnerships as well. So Hewlett Packard uh, Enterprises, we also partnered with small companies as well, such as Crate um, and others. So once you open the doors and you say, look, between customer and supplier, there is this other thing called partner. And in a partnership, it's really more of a two-way street. It's not like you buy from me or, or they buy from you. So at the end of the day, you want to have this ability to have an open door and that takes sponsorship because of course those companies want to know like, okay, listen, this is a big company. You guys have 148,000 employees. Who is my advocate on the inside? Who can I go to? Who can tell me what to try and what to do next? So establishing this this reputation for like, look, I'll be that person for you guys. I will be the, the, the sounding board or I can advise you if you're looking to do business or approach mutual customers and things like that. The other part is just, and again, one of the reasons why I, even though ABB is a company that's global, uh, it's a lot of its leadership team is, is sitting in Zurich. Myself and, and a part of my team, we stayed here in Silicon Valley. And one of the reasons for that is there's 30,000 startups here in Silicon Valley. There's all kinds of innovations going on on a daily basis and our networks, cumulative networks of contacts led to a lot of people reaching out saying, hey, Glad to know you're working for ABB. Would ABB be interested in XYZ? So we got to hear and see a lot of different things just being accessible here in the Valley. And I think that helped a lot as well. And I think the other part is you have to have a really good quality reputation, meaning if you're the kind of company that listens to all these startups, but then essentially just takes their ideas <laughs> and runs with them, people won't come and, and knock on your door a second time. So I think having a reputation for integrity, respect, um, and recognizing that for these startups in particular, their time is valuable. They, they, they run out of cash. They, you know, if they're talking to you, you got to make it worth their while. And if you're not going to do anything, you should tell them that. And if you are going to do something, you should definitely do that. So I think that reputation as an honest broker is particularly important. And it's something which I don't think you can just sort of parachute into the valley. You can't just send somebody from head office. You have to have, I think, people that have roots here in the valley as well because they're known and they're known from their previous jobs. Yeah, I, I give you kudos on on two fronts. Number one is I think you did Silicon Valleyize, if there is such a word, uh, ABB, and uh, and I'll contrast it some of the other industrial players that that I think are trying the same. You made a lot more progress, uh, similar to you know what Bill did at GE. And the other thing is uh, I appreciate the plug for Crate. Crate, of course, is one of our uh, portfolio companies, and I tell you, every conversation I had with their leadership team relative to their experiences with ABB was extremely positive. So you know. The, the integrity, um, not wasting their time and all the things you mentioned are things I would hear from them as well. And so, um, you, know, um, uh, you know, kudos on both of those fronts. So I, I guess let me, um, you know, kind of, um, it, one, it's been a great conversation. Two, I'd, I'd really like to kind of wrap it up as the learnings you've now uh, you know, absorbed during uh, the, the tenure at ABB. If you could go back and reset the clock again, um, you know, what would you do you know, differently if you were to retake a position like that again? Well, I think one of the things I was working on towards the end of my tenure at ABB was this, this phase of the 
internal new digital business creation. And it kind of takes time because at some point you have to start with credibility, building a platform. Everybody wanted a platform. They didn't want to talk necessarily about creating new businesses from scratch. But I kind of wonder whether or not I could have done that a little bit more in parallel because these new businesses starting up a new BU, for example, takes time. And I'm not sure that there were that many dependencies between one part of my job and this part, because that would have been sort of identifying markets, opportunities, strategizing. So I, I, I wish to some extent I could have tried to perhaps start those conversations earlier. We could have potentially advanced those efforts by at least I think about a year or, or maybe 18 months or more. So I think that's one thing which I would definitely want to look at. I'm actually personally really attracted to that space because I think it's a new model for corporate innovation that companies I think are dabbling with now. And it's different than sort of the let's sell this or let's buy this uh, or let's just do purely organic internal which has run into all kinds of problems on its own because typically with a change in leadership or you know misfortunes in the core business, these internal tender shoots of, of new incubated teams tend to struggle after a couple of years. And that's sort of been unfortunately my experience is that while initially things are great in year three or four, that's typically when tough times set in with either a change in leadership or perhaps some competitive threats causing the company to want to divert resources to defend the core. So I think, I'm personally very interested in trying to experiment with new models of corporate innovation because I think it's sorely needed. Otherwise, the the Fortune 500 or you know the 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 biggest companies in the world have no choice but to either acquire or to divest. And I think that's a fairly brute force approach to innovation. And I'd like to think that there is a more nuanced approach that could be very successful. Yeah, we've uh, taken uh, one. I fully agree because I've seen the, uh, and certainly you have too, the plethora of scouting operations in the uh, in the Bay Area from you know very diverse industrial companies, some more successful than uh, than others. We've kind of tended to start to think about this as buy, build, borrow, right? Buy and build is the traditional way. Borrow, borrow, participate in the ecosystem, right? Leverage partners in that, whether it's taking on external investment, as he said, for a potential startup or spin out uh, and or working in and already established ecosystems, as you mentioned, uh, you know, Microsoft and, and Azure several times. So I fully agree. I think there is a... Uh, a, a new model emerging in there that sits as a hybrid, you know, between the traditional. And, and so I guess the final question, um, uh, of course, you know, I think you've already hinted toward it um, is, you know, uh, you know, and I'm sure everybody's uh, thinking about it right now is what is your next step? What are you <laughs> going to be doing next? Yeah, so thank you for that. Um, so I've gotten some inquiries from other industrial companies looking for uh, chief digital officers or, or chief technology officers. but. I'm actually much more tempted, and I've also had some inquiries from smaller companies that I guess calling them startups is probably not quite right. They've been founded about five or six years ago. They have about 200 employees. They're maybe doing tens of millions in revenue, but they're sort of making this key transition from selling projects to trying to sell products, meaning the first couple of successes were done by sending a lot of smart people to try and solve whatever problem the customer had. But now the time comes, especially to try to scale to the next level, that they should distill their learnings and into repeatable packageable offerings that don't require extensive customization. So they need to sell to enterprise customers, they need to figure out how to crack that code, they need to do marketing. And um, a number of these companies in that stage 
have recently approached me and asked for some either part-time or advisory role capacity to help these companies through these stages. And I find that super interesting. And these are in some very, very exciting domains like AI and, and IoT and other areas. So I'm, I'm quite tempted to potentially do that, Ken. Guido, thank you for providing this insightful interview. You're welcome, Ken. So this has been Guido Jure, recent chief digital officer of ABB and longtime digital industry leader. And I guess if I could, uh, if I could phrase it, a, a, a lifelong tinkerer as well, <laughs> yes. given your comments earlier. Thank you for listening and please join us next week for the next episode of our digital industry leadership series. You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Industry Leadership Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. We hope you've enjoyed the discussion, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at momenta.one for archived versions of podcasts and webinars, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening.